Good evening, dummies. Episode 187. I just got off live with people. Man, that was a fun live. We talked about concerts and uh, it was good. It was talking about our favorite music and things like that. Uh, it was just a great, great live. I love doing that, man. I love it when people engage on the live because it's boring otherwise. I just sit there and I'm just like, hey, guys, do you want to talk about something? I do that on the recorded show. You, you guys got to participate. So I love the fact that everyone got involved, started talking, mentioning their bands and all that stuff. Hello, folks. Episode 187, Tuesday, July 13th, 8.20 p.m. My name is Matt. Wonderful to have you here. This is the Don't Unfriend Me show, and we talk a little bit about everything. I will go into it more and uh, let you know all about our show, what we do here, and everything else. But first, we need to talk about what we're going to talk about. Well, tonight is an interesting, interesting news segment that's been going on. A lot of crazy stuff going out there. It's not just a job. It's an advantageous opportunity to complain. The United States Navy, it's not an adventure anymore. There is a 24-page report that was pushed by Senator Cotton, which really shows that the Navy is not ready for the next naval battle that could happen. It has been almost 78 years since a major naval battle has taken place, and we are not ready in any way, shape, or form. This is terrifying, and it's not the Navy that I was in. It's not the Navy that I know. People make fun of the Navy. But they shouldn't. They are some salty crews, and they train ad nauseum to be the best at what they do. We may have the equipment, but there is some disturbing reality to it. We're going to talk about that tonight. (sighs) Sticks and stones. But what if it's a microaggression? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. We grew up with this. We all heard about this. What the hell is going on? Why are people so sensitive? Why do they allow other people to live rent-free in their head? We'll talk about it tonight. Is it true? Do sticks and stones break their bones? Absolutely, but words will never hurt me. We're going to find out tonight. We're going to find out what's wrong with this generation and why they can't man up. Here's the best title ever, folks. I don't have any writers. I'm very proud of it. The Cuban Dismissal Crisis. Yes! Yes, I know. I'm so happy with myself. The Cuban dismissal crisis. You've seen all the riots and the protests that are going on in Cuba. Why? It's such a lovely place. Communism so fantastic. At least that's what the leftists have said. Well, that's not what they're saying now. They're saying this is about COVID. This is kind of like uh, Benghazi. It's about a tape. No, it couldn't be the anniversary of 9-11. It couldn't be a terrorist attack. We'll find out about that tonight. But first... What I always do, a joke is incoming. The Navy captain was approached by his lieutenant. Captain, there is an enemy ship incoming. They are armed with cannons and a hundred men with muskets and swords. Very well, said the captain. Fetch me my red shirt. Sir, why your red shirt? Because if I am wounded in the fight, the blood will be hidden by the shirt and it will seem as though I am unhurt and will strike fear in the enemy and give confidence to our crew. The enemy ship approached, and then two ships began to fight. The captain was wounded, but the crew didn't know it, and they fought confidently and won the fight. A few days later, the lieutenant approached the captain again. Captain, a fleet of enemy ships is incoming. There are hundreds of vessels armed with cannons and a hundred men each. Very well, said the captain. Fetch my brown pants. Recorded from an undisclosed location. Always honest, always direct. So sit back, relax, 
Don't Unfriend Me starts right now. Well, welcome, dummies, dummies, wonderful. Dummies, dummies everywhere. Who are the dummies? Well, first of all, I don't want you to fret. The dummies is the dumb nation, the don't unfriend me's. It's an acronym, and it's a clever play on words. It's in line with the deplorables from Hillary Clinton's days. And the flyover states, dummies is a sign of respect. The don't unfriend me's. You don't have to do anything special. You don't have to give me any money or sign up for a club. That's what all the other guys do. I'm not in this for the money. I make plenty of money. I don't need any more yet. But the point is, folks, the don't unfriend me's. If you've watched one show or if this is your first, you're officially a dummy. Congratulations. But there is another side. There are the dum-dums, a special kind of sucker like Dusty Dinkelman, a one of our first dum-dums. The dum-dums are people who just don't really care about anybody. They don't have an opinion other than CNN and Fox News talking points. They don't want to learn anything. They are rude. They are insensitive. They just don't care about anything. They just want to get you riled up and see if they can make you look dumb. Unfortunately, nobody can do that but yourself. So don't engage with these idiots. Just ban them. It's so much easier. Remember, don't unfriend me doesn't mean don't unfriend uh, people. It just means don't unfriend me. In real life, folks, it's like your neighbors and your mom and your dad. It's not worth a political conversation to friend, unfriend somebody. That's just stupid. On Facebook, who cares? It's all digital ones and zeros. doesn't matter anyway. My name is Matthew Spear. I am the host of Don't Unfriend Me. I am going to walk you through tonight's escapade. And you know what we're going to go through. But first, where can you find me? Well, you're obviously watching me or listening somewhere. But if you want to look at other places to purview my show, you can find it on Facebook, on Anchor, all major podcasts, Instagram, and YouTube. Please do me a favor. Head on over to YouTube right over here on this little red envelope. You can subscribe or like and follow. It just takes a second. Give me a like on the show. It helps the algorithm. It helps get the word out there. A lot of people watch the show and they forget to hit like. I mean, we have sometimes 1,000 to 2,000 views with like 30 likes. It just takes a second. And even if you don't like it, put an angry face on there. That's fine too. I don't care. It helps me understand what you like and what you don't, and it makes my show better. Lastly, if you're not into the whole social media thing and you hate Mark Zuckerberg and Dorsey, well, that's fine. You can go too. Don'tunfriendme.com. That has all my videos, my audio, my blog, and all that other stuff. You can stop by, leave a note, and when I have merchandise, you can go there too. It looks like I've got to get some shortly because I promised somebody tonight that I would have them soon. Let's get into it, folks. We don't have a lot of time. It's not just a job. It's an advantageous opportunity to complain. The goal of this report that came out was to look at the Navy's readiness level. This happens all the time, and senators say, hey, let's go ahead and take a look at this division or branch or this theater of operation and let's see what our biggest weakness is and we heard that there were a ton of issues with the leadership inside the navy now no we're not going all the way back to tailhook we're talking modern especially in the obama eras the goal of the report was to establish if these incidents that were reported were part of a serious isolated or unit level breakdown or if they instead indicate larger institutional issues that are degrading the performance of the entire naval surface force reads the survey the issues they're talking about is the fire in san diego that happened that almost took down the entire ship and did and had to be scrapped the two collisions that happened also giving to up to the iranians and surrendering one of our ships all of these things are in question the department of the navy has some answers and the admiral that led the navy also has to answer some questions 
There was a broad consensus across the interviewees on this investigation that numerous cultural and structural issues that impact the morale and the readiness of the Navy's surface force. These include an insufficient focus on warfighting skills. The perception of zero defect mentality accompanied by a culture of micromanagement and oversensitivity and responsiveness to modern media culture. Structural issues identified include lack of resources and consistency in surface warfare training programs and the Navy's underwhelming commitment to surface ship maintenance, a problem that spans decades. The first thing that was in the report was an insufficient leadership focus on warfighting. All officers go to Naval War College. And this is perhaps the most concerning comment and consistent observation amongst interviewees was that the service does not promote or advance surface ship warfighting in a meaningful way. Finding and sinking enemy fleets should be the principal purpose of the Navy, and that is their responsibility. End stop, period. But many sailors found their leadership distractive, captive to a bureaucratic, a bureaucratic excess, and rewarded for the successful execution of administrative function rather than their skills as warfighters. There was considerable apprehension that the surface warfare community in particular lost its fighting edge in the years following the end of the Cold War. With China building and operating a competitive fleet, the lack of proper attention on warfighting was a deep concern to many interviewees. Another major concern was a dominant and paralyzing zero-defect mentality. A prevalent theme emerged over the course of the interviewees, near-universal disdain for the so-called one-mistake Navy, the practice of treating certain errors with career termination and offering no opportunity for recovery. A former senior leader framed this problem using an evocative historical analogy, suggesting that none of the four key admirals who led victorious fleets in World War II would have made it to the rank of captain in today's Navy. The general unwillingness to rehabilitate one-off mistakes, the disinclination to weigh errors against the totality of a naval career, and the practice of discipline by paperwork were broadly understood to be a drain on the Navy's retention efforts. Under investment in the surface warfare officer training, the investment in surface warfare officer training pales in comparison to investments in aviation and submarine communities. Compounding its underinvestment problem, the surface Navy has reimagined its officer training program multiple times in the past 20 years, often seeking efficiencies, i.e. even smaller investments, and leaving the commanding officers with inconsistent, often ill-prepared wardrooms. Poorly resourced and executed surface ship maintenance programs. Nearly every interviewee had a story of a canceled, delayed, or drastically reduced major maintenance availability. Often this was identified as a problem driven by senior civilian leadership and combatant commanders who consistently accepted the maintenance risk to squeeze an extra month or two out of deployment. But this was also seen as a failure in manning and training the surface community to develop and assess maintenance work packages. Finally, there was an overwhelming perception that the surface Navy is the bill payer as aviation and submarine nuclear maintenance packages were seen as too risky to underfund. The cumulative effect of this underfunding and poor execution has left the surface warship less modernized and less ready for combat operations. Expanding this culture of micromanagement. Concerns of micromanagement within the surface warfare community are alarming, and this is a no-no in any type of leadership role, whether it be in retail or business, even in law. Micromanagement is the death of morale. If you can't delegate to your people and have them make decisions, then you are destined to fail. When that top brass goes down, who's going to take his or her position? 
This is the next man up mentality. It's not just hockey. It was actually introduced by Hal Moore in the Air Cav, the next man up. Know how to do the man's job above you and make sure the one below you knows how to do yours. The first is that technology has empowered admirals and commodores to exercise greater, arguably unhealthy levels of control over ship captains. The second was that this control drives a level of toxicity and lack of accountability and initiative in the Navy's warfighting command hierarchy. Given the increasing likelihood that naval commands may be isolated or cut off from communications in a high-end fight, creating undue dependence on higher headquarters for day-to-day direction could negatively impact future naval combat operations. Did we not learn this in Vietnam? The corrosive, over-responsive to media culture. Sailors believe that Navy leaders are excessively reactive to an unyielding U.S. news cycle and are unable to distinguish between stories that demand a response and stories that do not. A pervasive sentiment is that the Navy leaders have subverted the responsibilities of the chain of command to the pages of Military.com or the Military Times and make punitive decisions based on negative news reports rather than the service's own standards of discipline. So what's it going to take to fix it? Listen, I'm not an expert. I have been out of the Navy for 22 some odd years, but I do know a lot about it. I know a lot of people in it, and I'm still a part of the community in a lot of ways. Number one, prioritize war fighting. Are you fucking kidding me? Pay to develop, host, and utilize high-end, multi-mission warfighting training tools for ship crews. Once a ship is ready for deployment, administrative training should be deprioritized by the ship's captain. Foster in the surface warfare community a better focus on the Navy's core mission of fighting and winning on the high seas. It starts with DC control. Once you go through DC, you should make rate. Once you make rate, you should go for surface warfare. And then if you're attached to an air wing, you can go for air warfare. We must train every sailor to understand the job above them, a higher level of accountability. This was gospel on my ship. If you weren't learning, you were dying. Number two, encourage risk-taking, please. Develop and conduct experimental wargaming capabilities at all fleet concentration area where warfighters can develop new tactics and experiment through failure. This was crucial to our success. War gains with Japan and Australia constantly were taking place. Pick a surface warfare officer training and development path that ensure it has significant and sufficient resources assigned to it. And then stick with it for a half a decade or more. Identify ways to increase bridge time for surface warfare officers. Give them the helm as often as possible during peacetime so they know what the hell to do during wartime. Number four, develop a rigorous operational strategic warfighting course in EXO and the CO pipeline with a combat focus on the integration of surface naval capabilities to achieve strategic end state. The EXO and CO should and have to be lockstep with each other. One command should follow the other at all times. There should never be hesitation or doubt. A sea captain is a fearful and frightful thing. Second to the master chief of the boat who is all-knowing and powerful. This is the recipe for success. Success, not success. Publish, my head is itching like crazy, allergies. Publish the annual surface Navy maintenance scheduling and funding plan and then provide a report card to Congress at the end of the year with each delay change in funding explained as a factor of risk accrued. The Secretary of Navy and the CONO, the Chief of Naval Operations, should assume responsibility and ownership of this plan, and they should be on the Hill constantly giving updates and status reports. If not, they are failing their job. 
Number six, get the fucking politics and media out of the wardroom. Renew the Navy's noble tradition of remaining out of politics. Limit social media accounts and activities by Navy officials. Discourage use of toxic platforms by sailors. Remove all political and sociological topics from professional military education and replace them with essential warfighting courseware. Modernize public affairs training and stop pussifying the Navy. Seven, institute a service level review to place non-combat training in a session pipelines and out of warfighting environments and to assess and reduce bureaucratic and administrative functions assigned to warfighters on deployment empower commanders to make judgments on prioritization of training and support them in their decision eight eliminate distraction institute a review to identify and reduce bureaucratic excess non-essential communication and unnecessary administrative burdens Aim to create white space on calendars that can instead be used for training, doctrine, and warfighting fundamentals or flexing moments that anything can be entered as long as it is necessary for the warfighting mission and your AOR. A major peer-level conflict in the 21st century will likely play out largely in the naval theaters of operations. Unlike the surface Navy's last major war, which concluded 76 years ago, such a conflict will likely proceed swiftly and not permit significant time for organizational learning once it's underway. U.S. national security depends upon the surface Navy being an effective team. The most important step Navy leaders can take is to prioritize, above all else, warfighting and lethality. Their paramount responsibility to fight and win on the seas must be communicated by senior commanders in wardrooms, over email, in meetings, and most important to the American people. The sailors interviewed for this report do not believe the Navy prioritizes fighting and winning because Navy leaders do not talk about fighting and winning. Former Secretary of Defense James Mattis said in testimony that the United States does not have a preordained right to victory on the battlefield. Unless changes are made, the Navy risks losing the next major conflict. At the top level, the Navy serves the same role as any other branch of the U.S. military, specifically to strengthen and defend U.S. interests abroad and at home. How it does that is where the Navy is unique. Unlike any other branch, the Navy operates from the seas all over the world. The seas are special for these reasons. They are international. No one claims ownership of blue water. Only coastal areas belong to the country that they surround. Water is pretty effective at killing people. Land and air tend to be a little more forgiving. Water allows for huge vehicles to be operated in and audit. So the Navy is specialized service that focuses on sea operations that focus begins at boot camp. While every soldier is trained to be a basic rifleman, every sailor is trained to be a sailor first, then they learn their warfighting specialty afterwards. As vessels get larger and larger, the division of labor on board a vessel is more pronounced, but it's never lost on anyone that members of a ship's crew are always standing by to be a regular sailor if there is an emergency that requires it. All of us have heard the DC go off. All of us have heard general quarters go off and know that we get to our post because there is nothing more terrifying than an attack or a fire on a ship and everybody must do their job in order to survive. A ship is built on compartments, not the whole. And if one compartment goes down, the ship fails its mission. At strategic levels, the Navy's purpose is power projection. This means protecting U.S. trade routes. It means operating aircraft from international waters, basically controlling the 70-plus fucking percent of the Earth that is covered in that uh, H2O stuff, also known as water, and controlling it in every way imaginable. One of the ways to make that power projection more effective is to make it highly mobile and highly deadly. 
part of why naval warships are able to move so quickly around the globe compared to civilian counterparts. Without the Navy, we die. We don't control the shipping lanes. They win. It's that simple. And if anyone doesn't believe that, check every single major battle and every single major war. And if the Navy was not able to shut down their supply lines, they weren't successful. Why do you think Vietnam was so hard? Anyone actually looked at that besides all the politics? The Navy is a prominent force in World War II, in World War I. It is an absolute essential part in any war that we're going to fight tomorrow. And if it's not ready, and the lethality is not absolutely the cutting edge of the saber, China will eat us for lunch, no matter how insignificant their Navy may be. It is the one advantage we have over them until it's no longer an advantage. Cuban dismissal crisis. It sure has been quiet the last few days among the Democratic Socialist crowd. Bernie Sanders, who can't shut up about much of anything most of the time, seems to have lost his tongue in his Twitter. Ditto for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her fellow commie harpies in the squad. Why do you think that is? One would imagine the fact that one of the America's left's pet regimes, that which governs in the enslaved island of Cuba, is on the verge of toppling might have something to do with it. It's been a really interesting weekend in Cuba as massive demonstrations have broken out all over the island and the Castrite government there has threatened to be put them down with violence. The outbreak of protests led to one of the more bizarre news leads which landed the New York Times under a pile of ridicule, shouting, Freedom! And other anti-government slogans, hundreds of Cubans took to the streets and cities around the country on Sunday to protest food and medicine shortages in a remarkable eruption of discontent not seen in nearly 30 years. Dan Bongino had something to say about that, and he let the Times have it, pointing out that it summed up the divide between left and right in America perfectly. As Bongino put it, freedom is a right given by God, not government. And the Times tweet promoting its Cuba coverage shows its employees have it backwards. Perhaps they should all get a little leeway. I mean, times are a bit rough for the left these days. It's been six months of Democratic control of practically everything in national politics, not to mention a full-on rout in the culture, media, and finance. They're having their moment in the sun, and yet, and yet, there's something lingering. In the immortal words of Johnny Caspar, running things, it ain't all gravy. Why are the Cubans taking to the streets, mind you? We're told that it's because there's a fresh surge of COVID-19 on the island and because tourism is down as a result. But tourism isn't down everywhere in the Caribbean. It's coming back in the Bahamas and Jamaica, just as one example. Maybe one reason it's down in Cuba is that people with eyes can see the oppression, the hopelessness, and poverty on display in the only totalitarian dictatorship in the region. And shockingly, totalitarian dictatorships don't put on a fun party as free countries do. There's only one, only so much charm even leftists can find in a dilapidated building and 60-something-year-old hoopty cars wobbling their way down potholed streets. For a while, the narrative was that Cuban poverty and its status as an anachronistic 1950s time capsule was somehow captivating, and all that would be lost when American corporations eventually came in and bulldozed those crumbling structures to make room for steel and glass monstrosities, or something. The bet here is more that the Mechaciendas, which are eventually coming to Havana and elsewhere, will be a lot more aesthetically pleasing than the brutalistic architecture so favored by your local urban city council or federal bureaucrat. But that's probably for another time and story. Cubans aren't upset because Los Yankees 
are choosing Grand Cayman and Punta Cana for their summer vacays, nor are they mad because of insufficient COVID vaccine distribution, another idiotic idiotic lie spread after the streets filled there. They were yelling freedom and other anti-government slogans, not anti-COVID slogans. They weren't yelling Moderna, and they weren't carrying around paper mache busts of Anthony Fauci as the local teachers union chapter might. The protesters even had American flags as they demonstrated, which is eye-openly dangerous in a place like that. Carrying an American flag in an anti-government demonstration in Cuba is a great way to get memory hold until your dotage, if not tortured to death by Thursday. No wonder the cat got Bernie and AOC's tongues. It doesn't look good. And since they regaled us with laughable BS for years about how Cuba's medical system, which doesn't even have clean needles or bandages, much less hospital beds or MRI machines, is better than ours, and how Cuba is a more equitable place than America, something that was insulting to the intelligence of all, considering that Fidel Castro died richer than Mitt Romney. So did Hugo Chavez. They're idolized. And by the way, their silence is golden. The Cuban people, a quarter of whom have gotten the hell out of there since Castro stormed the capital, are upsetting the narrative. But the narrative is getting upset all over the place in the last few days, in case you haven't noticed. Democrat legislatures, legislators in Texas are having to flee the state in order to avoid seeing crushing defeats in a special session that would block virtually everything in their cultural agenda. Remember how Texas was turning blue? This isn't really what that looks like. President Biden's crime plan, not all that well received. Consumer prices keep rising, which we were told was not a really a big thing. Then there's the collapse of the Tucker Carlson as Alec Jones narrative when it became indisputable that Carlson was telling the truth about the NSA spying on him. And the begrudging political catastrophe that is Hunter Biden's art career, while the laptop continues trickling out nuggets of joy. So yeah, Bernie Sanders, AOC, and lots of others in the pro-communist crowd don't have a lot to say lately, and it's not a surprise. But it sure is welcome for a change. Here's hoping those demonstrations in Cuba sweep out that murderous regime. And if the potholes in the streets have to be filled with blood in order to free Cuba, so be it. The repudiation of that regime and its fellow traveling shills here stateside is long overdue. And I would like a Havana Cuban cigar sometime in my lifetime because I'm not going to Cuba. So let's get this shit over with. Bring democracy to that island so we can get some nice little imports. That's really all I care about. Sticks and stones. But what about microaggression? I'm always telling my daughter and my son stories from when I was a kid. By comparison, the world of my youth was rougher and meaner than the world that kids grow up in today. So here's my question. Did this rougher and meaner world better prepare me to be a well-adjusted, happy adult? I say yes, and my Prozac helps me do that. When I was a kid, you could say we were less sensitive about a lot of things. I mean, just look at the commercials we watched. We had the Frito Bandito, the cartoon spokesman for Fritos. He was a a three-and-a-half-foot-tall Mexican thief. Can you imagine pitching that shit today at an ad agency? Okay, the Frito Bandito. All right, Phil, you don't work here anymore. Yeah, you got to clear out your desk right now. Some were violent. The Hawaiian Punch. Every commercial was the same. A cartoon Hawaiian character walks up to an unsuspecting cartoon tourist and says, Hey, how about a nice Hawaiian punch? Sure, says the tourist, but gets him punched directly in the fucking face. We all thought, that's hilarious. Kids had to be tougher then, too. An occasional playground fight was expected, and as far as teasing... My mom had a remedy for that. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. 
She used to say that all the time. One of the seemingly endless adages she had at her disposal to deal with any of life's problems. But I think long and hard about that practical application that statement had on my life. That's true, I thought. If someone punches you in the chest, it hurts no matter what. But with words, it all depends on how you think about it. You can actually choose whether or not to be hurt. You can't choose whether or not a punch hurts. But you can choose whether or not words hurt. And that's huge. Even though it had been repeated ad nauseum for generations, sticks and stones really was a powerful bit of philosophy to a kid. That's one of the great things about being a parent. You can spout cliches to the cows come home, and yet, to your child, it's all new. You come off as one of the greatest thinkers in Western culture. But does anyone really say sticks and stones anymore? I doubt there is a grammar school teacher today who is even allowed to utter that phrase. They're much more likely to warn against the ever-present danger of hate speech and are the triggers or hurting people's feelings. And this is done in the name of teaching children to respect each other. It begins innocently enough by trying to eradicate teasing, but it continues into middle and high school where there's no greater sin than offending someone's personal or cultural sensitivity. We've seen what used to be called the great books banned because of fear of offending. That would not even have occurred to us years ago. Of course, how could the physical abuse in the Great Gatsby harm us in high school when we spent our childhood watching Jerry mouse the staple gun Tom, the cat's tongue, to the wall? How could reading an honest depiction of racial attitudes in The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn harm us when we sang ay 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 along the Frito Bandito or fat kids, skinny kids, kids who climb on rocks, tough kids, sissy kids, they said sissy kids, even kids with chicken pox. We sang that along with Armor Hot Dogs kids on our TV sets. We drank from a hose. We went on steel death traps 12 feet in the air and we fell from them. We hit concrete, not rubber. If we were missing a limb, our parents said, where did you leave it? Go get it so we can get it sewed back on. We've got to get to the ER. There was no Band-Aids. There were no boo-boo kisses. People looked back and some feel ashamed that teasing was expected in childhood and stereotypes were commonplace in our culture. But was growing up in that environment worse than the hypersensitive culture we live in now? For God's sakes, I didn't have any money. I had to wear my sister's Latigre shirts. And they were female versions with the buttons on the other side and they were pink. And they would write fag in lipstick on the back of my shirt. And I would get my ass kicked every single day. I know, woe is me. You know what? It taught me a few things. It taught me how to fight. It taught me how to get my ass kicked. It taught me how to cry alone. It taught me shame and not being able to talk to my father about it. But it taught me another thing. It taught me that I was weak. So I went in the military My frame grew out, grew to 6'4", put to 225, and I went back there and I kicked the living fuck out of all those people who used to beat me up. There's nothing like payback. It's a bitch, folks, and it comes back in spades. But is the lesson that we need to go beat up everybody? No. The point is, is that you are who you are, and the things that have happened to you surely have molded you who you are today. And without them, you would be and look very different. I look at my rough tumble of my childhood and the process of learning to deal with all that bullying and being insulted as a process of inoculation to become resistant to it, almost to become impervious to it, to its addictive quality of being self-loathing and self-deprecating. And after each instance of being offended and then repeating my mother's sticks and stones in my head philosophy, it was like a vaccine that built up immunity in my system and not one that's going to make you grow an elbow out of your head or that isn't trialed for more than a couple of months. 
but a different vaccine, a vaccine of resistance and toughness and metal skin. And yes, there's things that still trigger me, but they are a lot less than when I was a kid. And if I didn't have these experiences, I would be a less of a human being and waiting for the opportunistic moment of that person to go prey on me, knowing that they could. Weren't even aware that it was happening, that this inoculation process was happening. I can't imagine my college age self living in fear of microaggressions. Yet today, there are full-time campus administrators whose jobs involve scrubbing the campus of curriculum and social life of anything that might offend anyone. And these are college students, ostensibly adults, headed into the job market. And I don't want to offend anyone with a microaggression if they're holding a scalpel. I try to laugh it off. I don't want my outrage to match theirs. The best thing I can do is tell my stories to my kids and remind them that sticks and stones may break their bones, but names will never hurt them. And they'll think I wrote it, and I'll come off looking like a genius. Folks, we need to toughen up. We need to change the dialogue. We need to realize that, yes, there are some things to be truly upset about. There were some kids that were ding-dong ditching in my neighborhood. I don't care. Good for you. Ding-dong ditch my house. And I'm going to come out with some fucking eggs. I'm going to pelt you while you're walking away. And then you're going to learn not to go ahead and ding-dong ditch my house. It's a part of growing up, and it's all in good fun. UTP my house? You will never be able to step foot out of your door. I will ruin you. I'll TP your house with duct tape. I take it to the next level. I can be a kid. But these same kids who did that also drew swastikas at the bottom of people's streets. And I want to be very, very clear. These people are not sensitive. They are not offended. They are virtue signaling because these same sons of bitches that put a swastika on my neighbor's streets are the same ones that are crying when mommy and daddy spank them and going to child protective services, or when they get an F in school because they most rightfully deserved it, complain ad nauseum and have their parents called to get it changed and get out of summer school. They don't care about this high ground of pronouns and white privilege and diversity. It simply gives them a crutch to do whatever and say whatever they want. And there were people who had the stones on my page that said, they're just kids. No. They just classified themselves as Nazis and a hate group. And can you imagine if it was a Trump supporter who did that? This would be all over the news. We need to change the narrative. We need to grab our kids by the short and curly. They're not your friends. They're your children. And you have a responsibility to teach them the ways of the land, the Kung Fu. And until they can snatch the pebble out of your hand and not go to the local store and buy a pebble themselves doing them and me a disservice and the example of your children suck for my own. So for my selfish reasons, let's toughen up. Let's teach them that sticks and stones. Let's teach them that a punch in the face maybe is what they need and maybe they deserved it. Bullying is not okay. They'll figure it out. They'll get tough. They'll go in the military, grow and go back and kick their crap out of them. Or they won't. But it's all a part of life, and you can't stop it from happening. Because no matter what we do, kids will be kids, men will be men, and women will be women, unless you are a part of the other 64 genders. Folks, thank you for watching my show tonight. It was wonderful to have you. I'm going to go out with the Veteran Crisis Hotline, 1-800-273-8255, press 1. 22 veterans a day commit suicide is a serious issue. Anxiety, depression, traumatic brain injury, and PTS are all very real. Veterans need our help. We are losing too many. They need a conversation. It starts with you. If you can't, reach out to me. I'm available day or night. You PM me, I will answer. I'll get on the phone with you. I'll do whatever it takes to help. Let's not lose any more valuable commodities, which are veterans. 
If you are not a veteran who can make that call, maybe you can stop by my website. Click on the VCL link. It'll take you to a live video operator where you can have a one-on-one conversation. And if you are a civilian and you feel that you don't have anywhere to reach out to, the VCL will help you too. You don't have to be a veteran. They'll find you the right person to help. Folks, thanks for stopping by tonight for my show. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, simply like, share, and subscribe right down here. Follow me, say hello, do all those things, and make sure you come back tomorrow so you can continue to be a dummy. It's really important. It helps keep the lights on. Remember, we can agree, we can disagree, you can love me, you can hate me. Just don't unfriend me. Good night, everybody. I'll see you manana. Oh, that's cultural appropriation. I'll see you tomorrow. 